Hi, listeners. Welcome back to Through the Eyes of a Therapist podcast. I'm Crystal Martinez Acosta, licensed professional counselor, board certified therapist. If you've gotten this far in my latest series on becoming a therapist, you've heard about marriage and family therapists, clinical social workers, and school counselors. You know by now that to become a therapist, you need to get a master's degree, and to become fully licensed, you must complete a postgraduate internship. Most of these last at least 18 months post-master's, and you need to accumulate at least 3,000 hours of supervised practice depending on the state you live in. Supervised practice means that you must contract someone who is a clinical supervisor to analyze and sign off on your 3,000 hours. Clinical supervisors make an investment in provisionally licensed practitioners. They meet with them on a weekly basis, going over treatment plans, evaluations, progress notes, and discussing other things that might be relevant to their clients or even to their personal lives. This is, most of the time, the last time a clinician is being closely monitored in their career before becoming independently licensed. To explain this further, my guest on the podcast today is Dr. Kate Walker. She's an expert on therapist development and growth. Her work includes training fully licensed therapists in becoming clinical supervisors. She's also written a book called My Next Steps, Create a Counseling Career You'll Love. Let's talk about clinical supervision. So I met Dr. Kate at a training that I went to a few months ago to get my LPC supervisor designation. And she was kind enough to, you know, stay in contact with me and then um, appear on this interview, which is really awesome. What I'd like to do is just have her introduce herself to us. um, And I'd like to have you all get to know her right along with me. So Dr. Kate, I'll hand it over to you. Thank you, Crystal. I'm so happy to be on your podcast uh, through the eyes of the therapist. I think this is wonderful. So a little bit about me. I am originally a a music education orchestra teacher. That was my very first degree, and I got that from the University of Texas uh, a long time ago. So I was a bass player, and then I, uh, I guess about 14 years into my career, decided to switch to counseling. And so I got my master's in counseling from Sam Houston State University. And soon after that, I started a private practice um, and my Ph.D. program. Now, your listeners may or may not know, you don't have to have a Ph.D. to become a licensed professional counselor. So master's is our terminal degree, but I wanted the Ph.D. I was just a little crazy, not sure why. (laughs) And so I started my private practice and uh, the PhD program almost at the same time. But unfortunately, life happens, and I had breast cancer, um, gosh, probably seven months into the program, and my husband was deployed to um, Iraq. So it was 2004, 2005. Um, I didn't stop the program, though. I kept going, and so I was able to finish my PhD in 2007, which was awesome, uh, because my mentor, Judy Detrude, Dr. Detrude was my mentor and the program director at Sam Houston State University. She invited me to sort of restart my practice under AchieveBalance.org. And it was wonderful, too, because she gave me all of the material to start teaching supervisors. So now my practice 
is uh, three days a week is my clinical practice where I see clients. And then the rest of the time, I'm developing training materials through my company, Kate Walker Training. And so that's where I met you, where I got to teach you. And now you're an amazing supervisor, too. And I'm so proud of you. Thank you so much. Um, would you be willing to talk to us a little bit more about your company and your practice? Like, if maybe people want to know a little more about it? Sure. So my clinical practice is unusual because uh, it is a cash-only practice. And when I say cash-only, that doesn't mean people, you know, need to come equipped with dollar bills in their hand. A cash practice really is also known as an I'm an out-of-network provider. And so my clients are welcome to use their out-of-network benefits if they have them, but they're responsible for paying my fee at the time services are rendered. And since I'm a solo practitioner, um, that works really well for me because I don't have the overhead of a big office or, you know, lots of staff to take care of. Um, so it really, for those of your, of your listeners who know that someday they just really want to have um, that just their, themselves in their office and, and seeing clients, that's not a bad model. Also, one of the things I knew when I started out, I, well, I had three kids. I still do. But they were little. They were little bitty at the time. Mm-hmm. And I knew that I wanted to be home when they got off the bus. And so that was also a huge focus for me developing my practice was that I knew I was going to be in the time of day not necessarily known for counseling. I was going to be working ideally from nine to three and, you know, maybe only having one late night a week. And, you know, it's it's really turned out that way. I'm, I'm very, very fortunate. Uh, my clients will come to see me nine to three And then, you know, I think usually I only do one late night, but never weekends or anything like that. Um, Now, my training programs, those are a little bit different because my training was also so I could take, you know, those wonderful things called sick days, right? So if Mm -hmm. I was sick or my kids were sick, I would still be able to have income coming in. And so developing courses was my way of making sure that even if I wasn't seeing clients, I was still earning some some money. So I have online courses, I have face-to-face courses, I I wrote a book, my book, My Next Steps, Create a Counseling Career You'll Love. Um, So lots of different things through Kate Walker Training, so uh, I don't have to be constantly seeing clients in order to make an income. That is really smart. It sounds like uh, you diversified the way you get income, which is really, really a good idea because, I mean, I would imagine I'm not in private practice yet at this point, but I would I would imagine that's a concern because, I mean, I don't know if you'll always have clients every single day. And sometimes I like to take vacations. Sometimes I like to celebrate holidays, <laughs> you know, it's and, and being a working mom. You know, it's uh, I'm, I'm always, you know, being pulled in, in lots of different directions. And so really having that, you know, we call them other streams of income, it gives some flexibility. So any of your listeners who are, who are interested in going into private practice, keep that in mind. If you don't work, you may not be making money unless, of course, you work for an agency, which is wonderful. That's a great thing to do, too. Um but the private practice arena, you really have to be an entrepreneur 
and think outside the box and think about those things like, you know, retirement or buying a new car or fixing your brakes on the car that you have and savings accounts and all those fun things. Mm, like unexpected things that you have to pay for. Things like oh, yeah. that. Yeah. I would like to get into the topic of clinical supervision because I know that this is your area of expertise and um, you have several courses at your website, katewalkertraining.com, correct? Yes. So, um, right. You do the full 40-hour supervision training for LPC supervisors in Texas. And um, what I wonder is, what kind of led you to go this route to teach supervisors? What was it about your personal experiences or professional experiences that influenced you um, to make you take this path? Honestly, the only reason I started doing this was because my mentor, Dr. Judy Detrude, encouraged me to do it. She was, uh, I never, ever would have thought of this myself. Um, I'm dual licensed, so I'm an LPC and an LMFT supervisor. And, you know, at the time we started doing this, I think it was 2007, um, I had been a supervisor for maybe, you know, a whole year, so I had zero experience. And I was really assisting her teaching these courses. As it's developed, you know, as time has gone by, and my, you know, my mentor, she's retired, um, and I've been able to take the courses and really turn them into something um, where I feel like I'm developing leaders and mentors in the field, um, kind of the way she mentored me. And that's really become my passion um, because I hear and see uh, so many supervisors who get discouraged, you know, they're worried about the liability because, um, you know, I mean, when, when you're a new counselor, you make mistakes, right? Mm -hmm. So supervisors are often really, really scared about, or people thinking about becoming supervisors are scared because they don't want to take on that added liability. So my mission has always been in the 40-hour training to take an LPC or an LMFT and give them the skills, but also really, really encourage them and empower them um, to, to get over that fear. And I do that a couple of ways. One is, you know, of course, through the material. I focus on uh, helping supervisors have all the right tools. But then after they graduate from my program, you know, I have things like, you know, the Facebook group where everybody can, you know, throw questions at each other. I have the live consultation group, you know, anything that allows us to have community, um, because I really believe in maintaining that village. Um, so mistakes don't just become so humiliating and embarrassing. Uh, mistakes become an opportunity to grow because you know that there's a safe space where other people can can hear you and, and give feedback. It's such an awesome thing uh, that you've created because I feel like supervision is so, so, so important. And um, now that kind of like I'm at the stage where I'm going to become a supervisor, um, actually, I'm going to do that in May of 2019. And that's when I'm going to start taking my first awesome. few LPC interns. Yeah. And so it's an interesting position to be in because I remember as a student or as a graduate intern um, or an intern that already graduated, it was really it's kind of intimidating being out there. But with really strong supervision, I think that um, it can really 
uh, I, I hate to say it this way because I don't like the black and whiteness of it, but it can really make or break you. I think that um, uh-huh. if you have a good supervisor, I think that you'll end up in a really good place clinically. Um, you'll be able to sustain yourself as a therapist. But can you talk to me a little bit about your opinion about why supervision is important to you? Well, first, let's go with the definition of clinical supervision, because um, I just want to expose our listeners to the idea of clinical supervision, just because I don't know if they actually know what that means. Um, I know that they might be familiar with supervisors in general, like, oh, I work at the bank and my supervisor is the guy who makes sure I'm doing my job or who will write me up, you know. But um, I think clinical supervision is a little different. And I wonder if you can kind of explain to us what you think the difference is. Sure. So, and I'm glad you gave that example, because that example, you know, having a supervisor at work or, you know, um, it's, it's an example of administrative supervision. Right. And so, yes, your supervisor is there to give you tools and guide you and sort of help you understand how to uh, succeed in the business. But ultimately, if you mess up, they're going to fire you. Clinical supervision, it's a little bit different. It's more like a parent. Like if I get mad at my kid, I can't fire my kid. And so when I take on a supervisee, it's a very, very serious arrangement for me because the state says I can't just fire my intern because they mess up. In fact, there's a rule that says I must remediate them before I terminate them. And so for me, I I make it really clear to my interns. In fact, I have a whole vetting process because I think that relationship, I have to really be able to trust them and they have to really be able to trust me. Um, That, uh, that process of, of almost parenting them along um, is is kind of the main job of, of clinical supervision. I'm going to take them from a novice, you know, the novice supervisee or the novice intern when they graduated with their master's and they're super skilled, like they passed a test and they know their stuff, but they're also really afraid of making mistakes, right? And mm-hmm. the bottom line is, they're all going to make mistakes, right? So I have to be able to help them be honest and transparent about those mistakes so I can move them into the next level. We call it level two, where they're taking some chances and they're starting to develop their own style and having a little pushback to me. And then finally, level three, or that's the level where they're going to now, you know, finish their hours and they're going to be my colleague. And so, um, I've got to be patient. I've got to make sure that I'm teaching, not reprimanding. I've got to make sure that I'm evaluating them so that they can learn new things. Um, now, that doesn't mean that if they don't, you know, if they do something dumb and you know you've been in my class, like the number one dumb thing that therapists do, uh, you know, is have sex with a client, right? Right, yeah. <laughs> if you uh-huh. probably not going to remediate that. You're fired. Um, Right, right. If, if your intern does something, um, just I have I as the supervisor, the clinical supervisor, I'm not going to write them up. I'm not going to stick a disciplinary action in their file. I'm going to talk to them. I'm going to teach them. If they make the same mistake again, I'm going to do something called a remediation plan with dates and goals and uh, signatures, so everybody knows 
assumptions that we're all on the same page. So there are going to be at least two or three steps before we talk about terminating our relationship and, and uh, severing that and, you know, basically firing them. So, yeah, clinical is a little bit, uh, I've got a lot invested in you and you've got a lot invested in me. Yeah, and and this type of clinical supervision that you're talking about is usually with LPC interns. And at this point, they've already gotten their master's degree in counseling and are working towards licensure, full licensure. But it's also very similar to... I think the only difference between having a supervisor after graduate school and while you're in graduate school is just kind of like the the expectation. Um, I think as a student, developmentally, you're not going to know a lot of things about counseling or a lot of things about handling crises or things like that. So it's very it's much more, I think, um, guided. And I feel like supervision after graduation, um, yes, there is a, a form of guidance, but I think that you're expected to kind of hold your own by yourself because your supervisor may not necessarily be on site with you um, or they may not be in the same room, um, but they'll have access to you and your records at some point. So you have to be a little bit more independent, I feel like. Uh, you're exactly right. Mm-hmm. You're exactly right. You know. Uh, and, and unfortunately, many universities don't really emphasize the point to the pre-graduates, right, that you're going to have 3,000 hours after you graduate with this supervisor, and it may cost you money, and it's definitely going to cost you four hours a month, you know, and, and so it's sometimes a surprise to master's degree students in, in counseling or psychology that, oh my gosh, you mean I have to go sit with this person, you know, once a week and talk about cases, and didn't I just finish with that? And You know, so one of the biggest differences for me, you know, you mentioned the independence, yes, absolutely, but also um, a licensed professional counselor intern or a, a, an LMFTA or a, a licensed marriage and family therapist associate, that's a license. You know, before you graduate, when you're seeing student or when you're seeing clients in your uh, university clinic or, you know, under supervision uh, from your professors, you're not licensed, Mm. right? Mm -hmm. Once you graduate and you take that exam and you see your number on the LPC or the LMFT website, you are a licensed person. And that means you are subject to all of those laws that, you know, the other licensed professionals are. So as the supervisor, I share that liability. So it, the stakes are much higher after you graduate and get your license. Yes, absolutely. I think that's a really good way to put it. The stakes are higher. Um, yeah, because you're right. You are a licensed person. Your name pops up on that website. Yeah. <laughs> and it can definitely pop up on the wall of shame. I think that's what we called it in the training with you. Yes. <laughs> um, can you describe what that is for us? What the wall of shame is? Oh, my gosh. Yes, the wall of shame. So uh, the board, the LPC board and the LMFT board, for your listeners, those boards were designed uh, like any other licensing board. So, you know, let's say for a driver's license, right? A driver's license is designed so that people who hold one are held to a certain standard, right? And it's not for the driver. It's for the public. Licenses are designed to protect the public. And so, you know, when the, the LPC board, uh, when a, a notification comes to them, a notice of violation or NOV uh, comes to them that someone has uh, 
broken a rule, so someone has either been reported by someone else or maybe they self-reported, they go to the board and um, we'll have brand new rules ratified and ready to go probably the end of February 2019. So things may be a little bit different from, from what I'm saying right now, but uh, in, a, in a nutshell, the complainant or the person making the complaint has an opportunity to speak to the board and the defendant, which is the counselor who the complaint is complaining on, has an opportunity to speak to the board. So if the board finds that that complaint is valid, there can be any number of uh, disciplinary actions. So everything from having to take a few CEs to getting your license revoked. And once the board has determined that uh, disciplinary action, the person who, you know, the, the therapist who's in trouble has the opportunity to a fair trial. But if they find that they're in trouble for good reason and then it goes through and due process happens, then they end up on the wall of shame. Is your name, your license number, and the reason uh, detailed. It's, it's, it's not a good feeling to be on the wall of shame. To think about, like, everything you've worked for, I mean, you know, like your graduate, uh, your graduate work and then graduation and your licensure and the 3,000 hours and how long and arduous that road is. I just, I can't fathom why. And I don't know if I'm going to edit this out or not, but I always say something kind of controversial. So I guess I'm not going to, but <laughs> I just feel like why? Yeah, because I do too. Yeah, because like, why would you go and do something like have sex with a client after all that work, all that money, all that time? Like what? Why? And I'm sure there are probably like clinical reasons or whatever, right? Like that person sure. probably needs help or something. But still, like, I, I just I don't get it. <laughs> like, I don't get it. It's and, too much work. Well, and if you take like, like, if you take everything below that, like, let's take having sex with a client and put it in its own box over here. You know, one of the things, everybody makes mistakes. You know, everybody, you know, I know like with supervisors, I talked about it in your class, you know, everybody makes like paperwork mistakes or we maybe are sick and we can't meet with our supervisee all of the hours we're supposed to or some, some things happen. And so I think um, what the board is moving toward, uh, and, and we'll find out in February, so we'll see once this podcast airs, um, but it's, it's sort of allowing people who make minor errors the opportunity to remediate that without necessarily appearing on the wall of shame mm -hmm. and sort of reserving the wall of shame for the big offenders and the big offenses, you know, um, because I, I kind of, I'm with you, you know, it, it, there's a mistake, right? And then there's, oh, I'm going to have sex with my client. It's like, whoa, those things, <laughs> they're not even. Yeah, they're so different. Somebody, you know, at least that's, that's my feeling. So. Uh, oh, yeah, I feel the exact same way. And it's funny because when we looked at it together, I think at, in our cohort, um, it was interesting. It was like there was a, a like a sexual offense, which is like, OK, like you said, you can't accidentally have sex with a client like oops sorry about that like no yeah. um but then there was one <laughs> where like somebody forgot to change their last name or something when they got married or exactly. something like that and I'm like oh, come on right like <laughs> those yeah. are not I mean one I think is more understandable than the other but I can see how even something that small can can be something that people would be concerned about, I guess, right? Like, if you really want to be picky sure. about it. Because it's kind of like, well, this person's a licensed professional. They're supposed to be responsible. Uh -huh. 
And if they're not keeping up with their paperwork, then what kind of treatment are they going to be providing? I guess is the assumption. I'm not sure. Um, yeah, and it, the the different the, so the board hopefully will have these. Well, it, they have different levels, so there will be like a level one offense, a level two offense, a level three offense, etc. So you know, for those things that are you know, if you just got married and you didn't change your last name or you haven't updated your address, you can fix those things quickly. Like you know, if I get pulled over and I don't have my insurance with me, you know, all I need to do is just make sure that I prove I have insurance. You know, it's not that I have to go to jail for that. So. I think they're doing a, a much better job of making sure the punishment fits the crime and that it truly is doing the job of pr- protecting the public, which is number one, but also giving the counselor an opportunity to fix it without terrifying them out of the field, which was what we don't want. You know, we, we don't want people leaving this field. There's too much need, you know? Yeah. Way too much need. Which makes me think of, I guess, kind of the next question about the importance of clinical supervision. Why do you think this process is so important? I know that personally, I know why and I can talk about that. But I'd like your opinion about why clinical supervision is so important. Um, so lots of different reasons. I know, you know, so for me, counseling was a second career. So for 14 years, I was a music teacher, I was a teacher at heart, I go and I decide, you know, hey, I'm going to get this master's degree in counseling. I finished the master's degree, but I called myself the counseling orchestra teacher, because I really still had one foot in both worlds. I hadn't quit my job yet. But I was still, you know, trying to do kind of this little part time private practice. And what supervision does is it changes you into that professional identity of counselor. And so Mm -hmm. a good supervisor is going to do way more than just sort of tell you what you did right or tell you what you did wrong. They're really going to help you focus on how is becoming a counselor um, changing you, right? Because there are emotional changes. There are, you know, you know, I mean, you've been in the field five years. You're not the same person now that you were, um, oh, yeah. carry other people's stories. You're a secret keeper. There, there's just so much that that you know, the whole parts of your job that you can't share with your husband or your wife. Um, you know, we have to make these. Um, I was, you know, I I probably said this during your training. I think of that uh, show House, you know, where the doctor always has to make these decisions, and it's life or death, and you have to make them fast and. You know, we have to be brave and we have to be able to make the best decisions we can for our clients. Um, and you're not equipped to do that with, a, with your master's degree. Mm-hmm. You know, with your master's degree, you're equipped to take an exam, but you're not equipped to be a counselor uh, or therapist or whatever you call it um, and take care of yourself and advance the profession. And, and that's what a good supervisor is going to help you do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I totally agree. And I never thought of it that way. But that's a really great way to articulate it. You know, how when you graduate, it's like, cool, I passed an exam. And now I can like, move on to get my license. But you're not necessarily equipped with all of that. It really takes experience, like the experience with your clients, and helps you solidify that, crystallize it, and put it somewhere in like your little experience box. So that way, later on, you know, okay, I had that experience early on, or I saw somebody else have that experience, and now I know what to do with it or not to do with it. Um, exactly. Mm-hmm. 
one of the other things I teach in my course is as the supervisor, you will get to witness your interns firsts, right? So if you're listening to this, you have to imagine as a counselor, as a brand new counselor, you will have the opportunity to sit across from um, your first man or your first woman or your first person who has committed infidelity or your first person who has, um, I don't know, robbed a bank or the first person who has, I mean, all of these firsts, because we don't meet people like that in our everyday walk of life, right? Mm-hmm. And so you're going to be sitting with this person for, you know, usually, you know, 60 minutes, 50, if you're in private practice, right? 50 minutes to an hour. And if you're not able to process that with someone, um, that's a problem. And if you're a supervisor, it's such an honor to be able to walk with the supervisee through that Um you know, one of the stories I tell during my classes, you know, I was I was working with my intern and, and I kept feeling like there was something going on with her, something going on with her. And finally, we found out that the client that she had seen the week before was literally the first time she'd been in a room with the doors closed with a male other than her husband. Mm. So, you know, mm-hmm. she had her master's degree, she had her LPC intern license, but it was a first for her. And that was something I was able to help process with her. And she's an awesome, fully licensed person now. <laughs> yeah, that no, that's great. And I think that's a really good example because you're right. It's not like we're put in these situations on the daily, uh, like just part right. of normal life. Right. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've walked in and sat across from people that I would have never, ever, ever met, right? Because they're not in your social circle. They probably don't live near you. You probably don't have the same community. Um, so the the chances of you, like, knowing somebody, like, really intimately like that um, as part of your everyday life is kind of rare. So then you get to kind of experience that client through your supervisee. It's a really interesting process. I totally agree with you. It is, it is an honor to be able to see that. Um, and I think clinical supervisors have a lot of responsibility. It's like the that saying, like, with great power comes great responsibility. Yes. Kind of thing. Yeah. Spider-Man. Yeah, from Spider-Man, right? And it's kind of like, it's true, um, because we do have a lot of influence over kind of like what happens with our supervisees and then the way that they're trained and the way they carry through their interventions. So for those people who are listening that are considering becoming therapists or maybe are already on track to become therapists and they're getting familiar with the concept of supervision. So full disclosure on my part, I did not know, even as I graduated from my master's degree, from my master's program, I did not know you needed a supervisor for those 3,000 hours. Yeah, so I'm one of those people you're talking about (laughs) that didn't know. Um, It's kind of like a surprise, and you also have to pay me, you know. (laughs) Um, So it's like, okay, yeah, so... Um, that's that's so common, though. I mean, I run into that all the time. I think it's kind of like I had this discussion. This is a little bit off topic, but um, I had this discussion the other day with my husband, who is a high school teacher. And he's like, OK, well, some of the stuff that we're teaching kids is not very useful. So what I think they should do is teach them like life skills, like survival skills, like how to pay taxes and stuff like that. And I'm like, oh, my God, it's kind of the same thing um, when you graduate from a master's program like they don't really in graduate school go over 
how to open your private practice or how to do credentialing for billing or um, exactly. yeah, how much you're going to have to pay for a supervisor after you graduate. Anyway. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, you're right. I digress. But <laughs> can, can you talk to us a little bit about um, what makes a good supervisee? Okay, I will. I want to answer that. But let me let me answer first because you made me think of something because you know the intern has the opportunity to pick their supervisor, and you made an excellent point because the supervisor has so much power. And so let's say you're a graduate and you know you want to take insurance, but you live in an area where there's only one supervisor and that supervisor doesn't take insurance and you're just feeling like, oh my gosh, I have to go see this supervisor because they're the only one in town or I've got to drive three hours to go see this one because they're the only one around. The Texas LPC board just passed a law or actually they modified a rule that means uh, that allows unlimited supervision through technology. But new interns are going to have so much power to be able to choose their supervisor. And so supervisors are gonna have to up their game. And interns can start thinking about, okay, what's important to me? You know, is it important to me that to get a private practice experience? Is it important to me that my supervisor understands the DSM and can guide me through the hospital hoops and things like that? So, you know, I I love it when interns are already starting to think about what's going to make a meaningful experience for them. Um, as a supervisor, to to answer your question, my number one. Uh, characteristic that I look for in an intern is teachability. You know, you it, if you're a teachable person, if um, you're able to take my words and use them or, um, you know, have a meaningful conversation, um, you and I are going to get along just fine. Um, and then by the time you are in your sixth month or eighth month, kind of in that middle phase, if we're able to give each other a little back and forth, and it's you know respectful back and forth, a little pushback, a little justification, uh, or justifying your decisions, um, we're going to get along great. Um, if you're a level three person, and because by the time you're a level three, you pretty much know everything at that point. <laughs> Just come to supervision with something to talk about. Don't come to supervision expecting me to provide the topic or to make it. You know, I've got to teach you something. Um, by the time you're level three, and so for your listeners, that would be you know almost the end of your internship. You should be coming to me with with new ideas and, and great questions. Right, like it's it's a lifelong uh, lifelong learning career, and I think that um, to to start off as somebody who's teachable or coachable is really important because it kind of sets the precedent for the rest of your career. Um, I, yeah, I think I've run into people uh, who are, um, you know, they, they really show that willingness to learn and it's okay if somebody corrects them and um, they, you know, assimilate that information and they go on and use it after supervision. And I think that that's a really great thing because, this career and this profession always evolves. And so I think it'd be really dangerous to take on an intern or a supervisee that is like, well, no, I kind of know everything that I want to do. So I'm good. (laughs) Be like, oh, that's kind of a big liability. I don't think so. Not even I know everything. (laughs) 
Yeah. Yeah, great point. And so that's another thing, you know, as a supervisor, I want to learn from my intern, you know. Um, uh, nobody knows everything, right? And so if my intern and so future interns, if you're listening to this, just be teachable. Don't don't come out of your master's program thinking, okay, I got everything I need. I'm just going to go to the supervisor lady just to check off boxes, you know. <laughs> supervisor <that>. lady. <laughs> You know, I I think that the law that you talked about that they changed, how they changed the rule about, um, I guess, being able to do supervision over technology. So like Skype or Zoom or something or phone. um, I think that really changes the game for this next question that I have about how to find a good supervisor. Because when I got licensed, I didn't really have a lot of choices here in El Paso, Texas. I didn't have a lot of choices. Um, I even had an LPC supervisor say that I would never I would probably never find a job. So I should come work for him for free. And I'm like, what the heck? And this person still practices like in my community, which is like, I kind of want to out him, but I don't. Right. Because I'm going to be respectful. But anyway, (laughs) but I, I think like had I had more options at that time where maybe I could call somebody like you, Dr. Kate, and be like, hey, can you supervise me? You know, I think yeah. that would be really cool. It changes the game for people. Um, so it does. what do you think? How should people find a good supervisor? Oh, my gosh, that is such a good question. Unfortunately, the one of the things uh, that's happened in the past 24 months, um, the LPC board has changed websites. And so as a government entity, they're not real tech savvy. So I'm not really sure what happened to the Excel spreadsheet with all of the supervisors on it. Cause that oh might be the easiest answer, right? Download the spreadsheet and start looking. Right. Um, oh my God. You know, I'm uh, one of my projects that I'm working on uh, with Dr. Taylor, Dr. Christopher Taylor is a member of the LPC board. I'm working on a certified supervisor training. And Mm. our hope is to be able to have a directory of supervisors who are awesome and who can, um, you know, who are ready and available to take on supervisees. Um, That's not up and available now, though, and I'm not sure what uh, what will be available uh, in February. You know, uh, it's hard to vet a supervisor. you know, coming up with, okay, what are the most important criteria? Um, it's almost like we need a match.com for interns and supervisors. Hey, that's not a half bad idea. I got to say. Uh, you know what? Hey, if you'll help me, I'll work on it with you. Oh, my gosh. Sure. Yeah. Heck yeah. I think that's important. Had I, okay, because then that would have had me avoid that bad, what first date equivalent to a first date with that person. That was like really horrible to me. <laughs> so, yeah. Yes. Anyway, go okay, ahead. I'm so sorry. By the time this podcast goes live, maybe we'll have our match.com for interns and supervisors. Because I'm telling you, uh, it's going to be like the Wild West. If once interns become aware of it, um, you know, I, I love El Paso. You know, I've told you how much I love El Paso. I visited there uh, last April, no, it was May, um, for the purpose of uh, training people to give the 40-hour course. I want more supervisors to be there so, you know, um, you don't have to just pick one. <laughs> you know, I want you to be able to pick a lot. Uh, but now that this new rule has passed, 
it's almost served the same purpose. You know, you guys can, uh, or your, your interns there can shoot, get on the phone, get on Zoom, like you said, and um, get with somebody in Dallas if they want to. So it's pretty cool. Yeah, that absolutely is. So, I mean, kind of like going off of the Match.com thing, What do because, yes, we do have to vet the people that we supervise as supervisors, but what do you think some questions should be for, you know, people who are going to be supervised for their future supervisors? What hours are you available? That's number one. Mm. Number two, what do I do in an emergency? How do I contact you? Um, three, what is your theory? You know, what do you feel comfortable supervising? And then four, you know, if the intern, let's say, is interested in EMDR or hypnosis or trauma or um, Gottman, you know, make sure that they know those words and they're able to ask the supervisor, hey, can you supervise me for EMDR? Can you supervise me for trauma? Um, I tell new interns, um, you know, all the time, I, I can't supervise your clay therapy. So, um, and I'm not really even comfortable supervising work with children just because I just don't have any experience. Um, so I encourage interns to get another supervisor or I can do co-supervise, co you know, with someone. Um, but yeah, I'd say those those four questions. Come, if you're a brand new kid, or not a kid, they're not kids. <laughs> you're a brand new uh, yeah. graduate coming out of, of, uh, of you know accredited university. Because um, I know it's so tempting for interns just to go, okay, just somebody sign my paperwork so I can mail this in and get my license. It's almost like if I can get your signature, then I'll think about it later. I can fire you and get somebody else. But it's just not that easy. So I highly encourage you, you know, listeners, if you are uh, in a program and you're just thinking about, okay, who do I get to sign so I can mail this thing off to Austin? It's, it's a relationship. You're going to be with this person for 18 months to five years. Um, that's another question. Sorry. Okay, so here's question number five I would ask. Um, if it takes me longer than 18 months to finish, would you be willing to supervise me uh, up to five years? Um, because some, like me, like I, I, I tell folks all the time, no, I'm not going to supervise you past 24 months. If it's taking you longer than 24 months, then I'm going to escort you on to another supervisor. Mm. So a lot of supervisors have different boundaries like that. Yeah, yeah. And that boundary makes sense. Um you know, you don't want people being, I, I guess, like kind of, I was going to say like poking around, <laughs> kind of like poking around and like taking forever to finish their hours. Um, yeah. yeah, I can imagine. So um, do you have any other things that you think we missed as far as supervision, why it's important, um, what to look for in a supervisor, anything like that? Well, if it's OK, I'd like to plug my book. Oh, absolutely, yes. Totally. Okay, so My Next Steps, Create a Counseling Career You'll Love is available on Amazon. And you look under Kate Walker, um, not Kate Walker the romance novelist, it's just Kate Walker, and then you'll see a picture of me. Um, My Next Steps, I interviewed five people to find out 
the mistakes they made, how they fixed them, what makes their practice successful. Um, their, uh, I called it their secret sauce. I wanted to know their good habits. Were they morning people? Were they night owls? Because these five people represented different types of practice. So one uh, person uh, directed a nonprofit. One person directed a large practice that takes insurance. Uh, one person uh, has an equine therapy uh, practice, and she also wrote a book. Uh, another one had a solo practice, just uh, a standalone. And then my fifth uh, person uh, was a mom with three kids under the age of seven with a large cash-only practice. So uh, kind of a real diverse you know, type of types of practices. Um, so my next steps, I would encourage for anybody, I don't, you know, even if you're a high school student out there thinking about um, becoming a counselor, um, and even if you're not interested in private practice, um, my next steps can answer those questions that, you know, you and I, Crystal, we're, you know, we, we could sit and think for an hour and not think of, you know, everything to ask, but, um, this question answers things like, you know, what to charge, do I get an LLC, how do I do taxes, should I do taxes, um, which you should, <laughs> um, the best types of schedule, uh, just just all kinds of different things that um, can really help someone who's trying to make up their mind about counseling or if they've made up their mind uh, what their next step should be. That sounds great. I think I need a copy of that. <laughs> so I would love to give you one. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. And also what I'll do is I'll post a link to uh, where you can buy it on Amazon on my podcast page and blog. So it'll be attached to this episode. So if people want to read it, it sounds so good because... Um, like for me, for example, I started off at an agency and I'm not sure. I mean, I don't know if a lot of people graduate, you know, get their license and then go straight into private practice. Maybe some people do that, but I know for sure I did not want to do that just because I have a different learning style. And so I knew that I had to be. Uh, at an agency somewhere where I can have peer support and somewhere where I can have continued weekly supervision with maybe another person or a consultant that's in the agency so that I can get my experience like really solid and then go into private practice. So I still know nothing about, you know, insurances and like having people bill or what kind of practice you want to run or cash only. Like I'm barely learning about these things. And so even if you are a therapist and maybe you have toyed with the idea of uh, going into private practice, it sounds like this book could be really helpful. Yeah, yes, absolutely. Yes, absolutely. And there are, you know, ways that, that um, you know, if you have questions, I've got the closed Facebook group for supervisors. Um, so, you know, I want to, I want to be a resource. And, um, so I love doing things like this, like this podcast is, is just awesome because I hope that future counselors out there, um, if you have lots of questions, you'll reach out and ask them and, and we can get you into the field because we need you. Yeah, we do. We do need you. And I, I've talked about how with other, um, people I've interviewed in the past few weeks, and their therapists, we talk about how there are some things that are a little bit scary and intimidating, but we don't want to scare you with these episodes. We want to inform you. We want to prepare you. Yes. And be completely Absolutely. transparent about, you know, what goes into this career. And I think that the more prepared you are, the I think the easier it will be for you to survive in this field. 
So absolutely. Yeah, I appreciate you coming on to the show. Is there anything else that you want to um, talk about? You said that we can contact you through Facebook, Instagram, uh, katewalkertraining.com. Any... All of those things. Okay, all those things. On my website, Kate Walker Training. Um, yeah, you said that. Uh, <laughs> I think that's it. I think so far that's that's what I've got. Um, I've got some YouTube videos um, that are more for supervisors. I, I think you saw those, Crystal, when we were doing the training. Um but yeah, that's that's how to contact me. All right, awesome. Thank you so much. Do you have any final thoughts for our listeners? Just everybody starts this field with a story and the story that creates the passion. So when that passion meets fear, you know, whether it's from a real world situation or you are struggling with your classes or you just get, you know, scared about, oh, my gosh, what am I doing here? Um, just don't give up. Find somebody out there like Crystal or somebody to just kind of be your guiding light and don't give up. Keep keep on the good course. And we, we just need you. Texas is a big state and we have so many underserved areas. And once you've done a great job as a counselor come see me so I can teach you how to be a supervisor yep absolutely and it's a great training um, it, it has very high reviews um, and I was lucky enough to get my agency to send me there because they were like you get to choose where you go and I'm like alright so I did my research and I'm like Kate Walker is it okay and I traveled all the way from El Paso so I was like this is this has got to be it for me so I think that you have a awesome. really Thank really you, good training program yes absolutely you know, Dr. Kate is just one of those people that I could spend hours talking to. She's super interesting, super knowledgeable, and is really down to earth. I really appreciate your time, Dr. Kate, for coming onto the podcast and your contribution to the mental health field. If you want to get a hold of Dr. Kate, I put all of her contact information that she provided on my podcast website, www.throughtheeyesofatherapist.org, and a link where you can get her book. We'll take a deeper dive into supervision and management next time on Through the Eyes of a Therapist.